I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. Isn't it strange some people make you feel so tired inside? Your thoughts begin to shrivel up like leaves all brown and dried. But when you're with some other ones, it's stranger still to find your thoughts as thick as fireflies, all shiny in your mind. This is a poem by Rachel Field, and like this poem, you might think one relationship's interaction to another is a mystery or magical, but renowned linguist and mega best-selling author Deborah Tannen's new book, You Are the Only One I Can Tell, guides us to understand the conversational ingredients and behavior that bond or break our friendships with women. Deborah, I'm delighted to welcome you to Just the Right Book. Thank you. I'm really glad to talk to you. Well, lovely. So why don't I start with a with a kind of a basic question. Your previous book, You Just Don't Understand, which was on the bestseller list for four years, uh, was in 31 languages and I think has become the Bible for the differences in uh, the way in which girls and women and boys and men uh, converse. And as you pointed out there, women tend to talk more, more often, and at greater length. And as you say in your book, to talk about more personal topics, and all this talk can lead to more intimacy and closeness, but also affords more opportunities to stir up emotions, both comforting and troubling, to say the wrong thing. What are the major factors driving one or the other? Uh, Thank you for that summary. That is a great summary of some of the main themes that I develop in the book. Um, Many of the personal stories that women like to share, like to tell each other, are uh, almost like secrets. And you have this this iconic image of two little girls. One is whispering in the other's ear. Mm. One of the uh, things I kept saying over and over when the book You Just Don't Understand came out was, for girls and women, your best friend is the one you tell everything to. For boys and men, your best friend is the one you do everything with. So it's this uh, sense that that they know you, that they get you, uh, that you don't have secrets. Women told me about being close to friends, things like she knows everything about me or she knows things about me other people don't. Uh, If she's a close friend, I tell her everything I think and everything I feel. So that is some of what goes into the, the positive side. Also the feeling that somebody is there when you need them. I heard such moving stories about women friends coming through at difficult times, both by being there to listen, but also by being there to do things to help. But the complication can come in um, in a number of ways. For one thing, girls and women are very sensitive to being left out or being hurt because they were not told something, since the expectation is that if you're close, you're going to tell what's going on in your life, and being close means you know what's going on in each other's lives. You can be hurt that you don't know. Um, And also, this can be especially true with groups of three, which are very common, or larger groups, but really with any friends, feeling that you were left out. And this is much more loaded for girls and women than it tends to be for boys and men. And since we're talking about women and we're talking about men, I want to say right at the top, nothing is true of all women Mm -hmm. and men. We have so many other influences on our styles, and I've written about many of them, regional, ethnic, class, sexual orientation, work that you do. I could go on and on, place in the sibling hierarchy, 
many other influences. Uh, but these are patterns we're talking about. We're not talking about generalities, all women, all men, patterns. Women and men tend to be more often more likely um, to to follow the patterns that I describe more or less in more or less extreme ways too. You could be more sensitive to not being told, not being included. You could be sensitive to it, but somewhat less so. Uh, but those are some of the points that can uh, that can cause pr- trouble between friends. And then there's the whole issue of just how a person makes you feel. And I love that poem you started with, because since these friendships can be so intimate and so close, people can sometimes feel it's a bit much Mm. or just feel, you know, I don't feel good when I'm with her. She makes me feel bad about myself, makes me feel inadequate, or for many other reasons. Um, Cutoffs are not unheard of. I interviewed uh, slightly over 80 women and girls for this book. Just about everybody I talked to had had experiences with cutoffs and often what's now called ghosting. A person just disappears. They stop answering your texts. They stop returning your phone calls. They don't reply to your Facebook messages. They might even unfriend you on Facebook. And and that can be very hurtful. And Deborah, was there a theme to those instances that generated this ghosting? No, there were diff- many different reasons uh, that people told me about. Uh, what I just mentioned was one, you know, it just didn't feel, she made me feel bad, feel inadequate. Um, and, and it was very striking. Um, I had an experience actually in high school where I was a member of a trio. Three of us were inseparable. And then one of the three just completely cut me off, would have nothing more to do with me. And since the other one wanted to stay friends with both, she was still friends with the one who cut me off, so I couldn't be with her either. One of the things I write about in the book was I had tried to find her just to ask her what was the reason. Mm. Uh, and this, uh, I graduated from high school in 1966. We are talking a long time ago. A long time ago. Yeah. Comes the internet. I tried finding her that way. Never could. From the moment that I decided I was going to write this book, I figured I must find her. I had a draft. The book was almost done. I still hadn't found her. I actually enlisted the aid of a friend who had a talent for this, and he managed to find her brother. You know, when women change their names, they're much more difficult to find when they get married. He was able to find a brother. I emailed the brother. <laughs> he emailed back, CC'd to her, and an hour later, she and I were talking on the phone for the first time in 54 years, and the first thing she said to me was, it was my brother who made me stop talking to you. Not that brother, another brother, but a much older brother who had a lot of power over her, and he felt I had too much influence over her. And she said, yeah, that was his reason, but I think he was just jealous. Mm. So I like this story because... There was no reason. There was nothing I had done. Yeah. And really nothing she had done. And I came across many other examples of that. Women telling me they just went through a tough patch. And women talk a lot. And they just didn't want to have to talk about what was going on. So they cut off all the friends that really knew them. So, Deborah, one of the things that I think we know instinctively, but I thought you did a brilliant job of explaining it. You talk about conversational styles, and you talk about that there are none that are alike, but that there are patterns that characterize the styles. And the two that you describe are high involvement and high considerateness styles. Describe those for us. I'm glad you picked up on that. Yes, I think it's so important. We all want to be considerate. We all want to show we're involved. 
but people with one style put the emphasis on showing involvement. So we might talk more often, more loudly, uh, stand closer, gesture more, um, ask more personal questions to show interest, leave very short pauses between turns because we don't want the uncomfortable silence, pepper somebody else's talk with very enthusiastic responses. Oh, my goodness, no, no kidding. Um, and, um, and many other related things. Someone with a style I call high considerateness also wants to show they're involved, but they put more emphasis on showing considerateness, not imposing on the other person. So they might stand farther, talk in a lower voice. Their voice might go up and down in a less extreme way, uh, stand farther away, leave longer pauses between turns, not ask questions because you don't want to impose, mm. less more indirect uh, as a way of showing how you mean what you say the high involvement might be more direct. Let me give you some examples, quick examples of friends, good friends, friends that were very fond of each other, but one's high considerate, one's high involvement. Quick example, uh, one woman tells her friend that her mother's in the hospital. She's really worried about it. And she expects the friend the next time they talk to ask how her mother is, and the friend never asked. She felt this showed not caring. So she actually brought it up to the friend, and the friend said, oh, my goodness, in my family, we were always taught you don't ask personal mm. questions like that. If you want to talk about it, you'll volunteer. Two friends walking around a lake, having a nice conversation. One is telling the other about something that she feels strongly about, and her friend is listening. But she also is noticing things that she thinks her friend would really not want to miss. Oh, look at those beautiful flowers. Oh, look at that. Look at that duck coming along the surface of the lake with the little ducklings in a line behind her. Suddenly her friend stopped and said, you haven't listened to a word I've said. She was so hurt. And this is what is so hurtful about conversational style differences between friends. This is somebody that should understand you. This is someone who knows you, knows how much you care about her. How could she think you, I wasn't listening? These were just, by the way, something like, could you pass the salt when you're in the middle of a story? You're not, I'm not taking the floor away from you. It's like a, like a sidebar. Uh, well, that's a high involvement style. You can throw in interruptions. It doesn't throw you off course because you're used to it. But for people to whom it's unacceptable, they, it really would throw them off course and does because their expectation is the listener is silent. <laughs> Maybe, mm, uh-huh, but nothing, nothing like that. Well, Deborah, you know, one of the things I found in reading this, um, I consider myself incredibly blessed by the uh, quality and breadth of my female relationships and consider them, although I love my husband dearly that I've been married to for 48 years, the, the relationships with girlfriends tend to be more freewheeling. If you repeat yourself with a girlfriend, they're like, oh, that's an interesting way to say that. And you, and you both know you've said it before, right? Yeah. You both know you've said it before. What I found this section on conversational style to do is make me alert to how a conversation might get derailed. And it's not, A, in understanding the styles that you just described, but also in being alert to when a friend might benefit from one style versus the other. So if you understand that you're a high-involvement converser, 
but you realize that what this friend is going through would require the more high considerate. They don't want advice. They don't want the quick interruptions. They just want to be heard. I found that section of your book to be extraordinarily helpful. Thank you for that. Well, thank you. And and I think you're right. The benefit, I think, in all these, maybe all the books that I write, certainly in this one, is that it does give individuals more options when uh, to talk to adjust their way of speaking, because ways of speaking do have such a uh, significant effect on the conversation and therefore on the relationship. So one of my uh, closest girlfriends and I, um, about a week or so ago, were talking about a something that happened to another friend. And we got into this conversation about, okay, well, when is talking about another person gossip? And when is it um, sort of the way we like talking about fiction or talking about our own lives, that it's a way that we have to learn how to understand how to live. It's, it's, it's how we think through issues. So when I read your book, there were two things that I'd love to hear you um, elaborate on. One is I was fascinated by your information about the origin of the word gossip And what's your take on when something is gossip that crosses a line and when is gossip more in the variety of we're telling stories? Yes, thank you for asking that because gossip is one of the negative um, associations with women's talk. And women have been negatively characterized for talk. Uh, from from time immemorial, they talk too much, they say the wrong thing, and they gossip. Um, I make a distinction between talking about and talking against. Mm. Talking against is, I think, the bad gossip, the kind that we get stereotyped for, and the kind that really one needs to watch out for. Um, you can say things about people in order to harm them, say things about them that may or may not be true, uh, but you're, you're running them down. But then there's talking about, and I think most of what we do as women is talking about. Um, and think, for example, of a family where maybe the mother is, is communication central. She often is. So uh, adult children will call and then they'll say, and how's my sister? How's my brother? How's my cousin? How's your sister? How's our aunt? You ask about how people are doing. That's not gossip in the bad sense, but it is gossip. You are talking about people, um, and it shows caring. It shows interest. I quote Cynthia Ozick, the novelist, who had a little essay in the New York Times Book Review where she said, Fiction is is gossip. It's mm. being interested in people, in people's lives. Um, Catherine Bateson, the daughter of Mary, Cath- Mary Catherine Bateson, the daughter of uh, Margaret Mead, said her mother pointed out anthropology is gossip. Mm. You want to find out about other people's lives, and I and I love the way you put it, and I and I would put it that way as well. That it's the way we figure out what we think is the right thing to do in life. How do other people? handle challenges that all people challenge uh, handle. Um, and, and I think it's a beautiful thing, and it's one of the things that connects people together. So I think we have to be careful not to stigmatize ways of talking about others that can be positive and not negative. And what about the origin of the word? Well, it means just friend. Yeah. <laughs> I think people yeah. don't. that come, It comes from the Middle English, right? That's right. It yeah. was the word for friend. I love that, that gossip really started as a definition of friends. You know, as you were, as I was listening to you, I can't help but ask you, um, 
I'm not sure if you saw this in the news. So there was a big Uber uh, convention uh, the other day. Not Uber meaning big, but Uber the company uh-huh. in dealing with the culture problems that they've got there. Ari And the board was on the stage. Ariana Huffington, uh, who's the only female board member of Uber, said that boards improve by having – once you have one woman, there's likely to be more women joining a board – Ariana didn't say this, but research shows that better decisions are made when you have a diverse board, and that would include more women. And one of the board members uh, said, well, they'll just be, that'll just mean there's more talking. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And he was not only criticized all over social media, but was forced to resign the board. Oh, my goodness. So I wondered if you had any observations about that. Yes, um, that's exactly what I said a little bit earlier, that women have been stigmatized for talking too much from time immemorial uh, in the book you just did in San. had lots of specific examples of that, um, some quite gruesome from the colonial period, uh, where women were punished for talking too much. So, yeah, this, he just was drawing on that stereotype that women talk too much. Now, I think both women and men often feel that the other's talk is pointless. Um, so all this talk about other people and what they're up to can strike many men as pointless. But all the talk about sports or about uh, the, spe- the, the particular machine that you bought or your car or your uh, hi-fi equipment um, that is very common among men can strike women as pointless. And it strikes us as pointless because, yeah, most of the talk that we do does not have a specific goal in mind. The goal is to be connected to each other, to talk in ways that make us feel we have something in common. Um, so I, 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 I don't know what to say about the decision to kick them <laughs> off the board. I guess my question would be, was that a uh, temporary slip-up, or did it represent yeah. an attitude that came through in other ways? Well, I think the worry, I'm speculating, but I think the worry was that this was yet another representation of a male-dominated, sort of uh, bro kind of environment. I'd be curious if it were a different company and somebody said that, if somebody might have made a joke about it and moved on and it wouldn't have had the power. Yeah, Uber is going through a lot of soul searching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wrote a book about women and men at work. It's uh, called Talking from Nine to Five. And I have a lot of discussion there. Yes, there's lots of evidence, as you just said, that groups come come out and committees, teams come out with better results if there are women included. Um, And part of the reason is because of the diversity, and part is uh, women often um, encourage more listening. Yeah. Um, There was a very interesting um, article in the New York Times Magazine a little while ago about the kinds of things that made teams successful, and they didn't say it was female, but everything they said was things that were more common among women, looking directly at the people who were talking, acknowledging their emotions and what they're going through. Also, I think, having been on boards a lot, one of the things I find that women do, and I've sometimes been the only female on a board, I find that women are more likely to make it safe to say something. Because I would find myself in a board meeting where I would be willing to say, I'm not sure I understand that. Could you help me understand what X means? And then you might see relief around the table from men who also didn't know what X meant, but the environment might not have made it safe for them to say that. So I think I find that, you know, 
but, here I am, an interviewer, and and I'm a high involved talker generally. But I find when when talk is productive, in other words, it's not just endlessly going on. It makes it safe for other people to share things that's liberating for them. Yeah, I think that's a great point, uh, and and that is something again that I wrote about there that women are often less reluctant to talk in a way that that reveals their own failings right. or luck. So I'm sure that many of the men there would have been hesitant to say, I don't follow, because they're thinking maybe everybody else understands. I'm the only one who doesn't. I don't want to look dumb. Sometimes it's good to think that way. Um, there was a woman who wrote me that way back. This is not a lot of women in medical school at that time. She was the only woman in her in her residency group. And she got a very low rating, and she felt it wasn't fair. She asked her supervisor, and he said, you don't know as much as the others. Mm. Why did he think that? You asked so many questions. <laughs> and she felt it wasn't the case that she knew less. It's just that, like you just said, she would ask. Yeah. Now, maybe I think there are situations where it would be good for everybody, especially if you're a doctor, to ask if you don't know something. But there probably are situations where it would be good to hide the fact that you didn't know. Go find out without letting anybody know. But that was an interesting thing, and it's pretty much in line with what you just said. One of the things that I think is often a failing among us as women is we don't necessarily say what we mean when we're afraid to disappoint someone. And you have a chapter called, That's Not What I Meant. Tell us tell us the story of the woman who was to be a lecturer uh, at an event and the call she made to the event organizer. Yes, I love that. Um, so I, I appeared to be a um, speaker at a, at a conference, uh, and the woman running the conference, when I came in, said, with reference to another speaker, we happen to all know each other, uh, so-and-so, it won't be coming. She said, she called me this morning, and she said, I'm, I'm feeling horrible, I'm coming down with something, I think I've got a fever, but if you really need me to speak, I will. And she said, the one who was talking to me said, and I told her, I really need you to stay home and take care of yourself. I said, I love that. Can I use that example in my talk today? And the organizer said, yes, yes, it was great direct communication. Now, that made me laugh, and I said, can I right. quote you on that, too? <laughs> because, this, and I think this is so important, it wasn't direct. It was indirect. <laughs> when she said, I'll come if you want, if you need me, she didn't really mean it. I mean, she knew that their friend was gonna, not going to say, I need you to come even though you're sick. Um, but it did feel direct because the meaning was clear. And this is so important for those of us who tend to communicate indirectly, and we all do in some situations, um, the meaning is clear. Then I, I contrast that with an example where it didn't work, um, and that happened to be with a guy, or maybe it wasn't surprising that it was, uh, where I was in the office of a colleague, academic colleague. I heard her side of a phone call where she was saying, oh, I don't see how I could do it. I'm so busy. There's no way I could take anything else on. I'm on so many committees. I'm teaching an overload course. I have all these dissertations I'm directing. I don't see how I could possibly do it. But if you can't find anybody else, of course, I'll help you out. And then she hung up the phone, and she looked at me, and she said, I can't believe it. I told him I couldn't do it, and he put me on the committee anyway. And, of course, she didn't tell him she couldn't do it. She right. told him she could. But it was. I'm, she expected him to understand that that was ritual. 
it was her way of saying, you can let me off the hook of your own free will. But I wonder if that's fair of us to expect other people to be that interpretive. I think it's absolutely fair, but you need to know whether the person you're talking to is likely to understand what you said in the way that you meant it. Uh, So this was an example uh, with the one I gave you of the organizer. I wouldn't say the woman who was sick uh, made a mistake, shouldn't have talked that way, should have said, I'm not coming. No, I think what she did was perfect, and the, the friend of hers who let her off the hook was also perfect. It worked because the conversational style was shared. And this is true about just about everything that I write about, everything we experience. It's not the uh, one way of speaking or another that's good or bad. It's whether the conversational styles are shared. If it's shared, the meaning is clear. You know, that brings me to another element that as I was reading the book and I thought about the relationships where I inevitably um, finish a conversation and feel better. You know, going back to the Rachel Field poem, I and you leave it feeling heard. You feel like you're thinking of your better self, not your worse self. Your frailties have been put in context. It's it's a whole quality that is liberating, satisfying. And as I thought about it, the number one ingredient that I think is underneath it that I'd like your opinion on is it's always women or or men because I do have men friends that I would have the, a similar relationship with is there's trust that I'm trusting they're not going to traffic in a frailty I just shared with them. They're not going to betray a confidence uh, that I might have expressed. What role do you think trust has in the underneath of these conversations and relationships? Yes, um, I think that for women's friendships in particular, trust is essential. Trust is the, uh, you might say, the uh, payoff at the end of the, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh, Because once you're telling about personal things, telling about secrets, that makes you vulnerable. Uh, somebody put it this way that I really liked. She said, when I tell something personal to someone, it's like saying, here's a little piece of me. Mm. That means I like you. And I think it's such a beautiful thing when you share back and forth that way. But it does mean that person has a piece of you and could hurt you by what they do with it. And it could be unintentional. Maybe they'll repeat something without realizing how you that it wasn't supposed to be repeated. But it also means that they're not going to react in a way that will make you feel dumb for having said what you just said, uh, won't make you feel that what you said was out of line. Um, I have some examples in the book of just small things that friends said that people reported to me made them feel bad. Um, so somebody just telling some simple thing that she didn't think meant anything one way or the other, and the friend said, boy, you do things for the strangest reasons. So suddenly she feels like, there's something wrong with me. So much of what we want from relationships is reassurance that we're okay, that the world yeah, is okay. accepts us. That our place in the world is okay. Right. And if there was one lesson you wanted people to take away from the book, what, what would you want it to be, Deborah? 
Um, well, I would love it to be the point about conversational styles so that if you get the impression that a friend um, is, is reacting in a way that you feel negative about, just kind of step back and ask, could it be well-intentioned mm. in a different conversational style? Um, and then, of course, all the other ins and outs that I talk about in the, converse, in the book um, are helpful as well to ask, why am I reacting the way I am? Could I react or behave in a different way? And I, I like to ask um, all our guests, uh, we're talking with Deborah Tannen, uh, the author of You Just Don't Understand, and now her new book, her latest book is You're the Only One I Can Tell, Inside the Language of Women's Friendships. What's the book that changed your life, Deborah? The one I wrote or the, the one that I the, read? The one that you've read. <laughs> I would have to say the book you just didn't understand changed my life. Well, I bet. I bet. Four years yes. on the New York Times bestseller list would do that. No, the book that you read that changed your life. You know, it's a funny thing, but I would say the book, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Not because I love the book that much. My mother was not a reader. My father was. So my mother did not guide me to read the books that so many young girls read, uh, Little Women, uh, Nancy True Mysteries, never read any of that. And my father was always trying to get me to read books, and he would suggest things like, that he liked, like The Three Musketeers, and that didn't interest me. <laughs> but he somehow convinced me to read A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and I was captivated. And that was the book that turned me into a reader. I found this paragraph at the end of your book about as exquisite a piece that I've ever read about uh, friendship. It reads, when friends die, a part of you dies with them. If the friend was someone who knew you when you were young, is that a part of you that dies? Your younger self, your real self. As I've gotten older, I've become convinced that the people we were when we were young are who we still are, who we really are. The trappings of age, the graying or thinning hair, the lines and sags in our faces are like masks laid over our true selves. I believe that one reason romances often blossom between people who reconnect after decades is that they see beneath those masks and see each other as they were when they were young, as they still feel themselves to be. In a similar way, friends who knew you when you were young help keep alive your own true self, and friends at any age and any stage who truly see you, truly hear you, are also helping you see and know your own true self. Do you think friends can be made, we're about the same age, do you think friends can be made who know you now, and only now, who meet you now, that you can have a relationship with your that person that allows them to know your true self and allow you to be your true self? Thank you so much for asking that and also for reading that, that section. Um, it meant a lot to me to write it. It's definitely harder when we get older. Um, if you're meeting people after retirement, for example, they don't really know you as the professional that you were, or they don't know you as the professional that you were in earlier uh, jobs that you had. So it's hard. But it isn't impossible. Um, and, and I did hear from people, especially women whose husbands had died or uh, had moved to a place where they didn't know that many people, uh, to find new friends who they feel they really connect with, 
maybe in other ways, and shared conversational style might be part of it. Uh, the feeling that the conversation has this rhythm that picks up, that is perfect, almost like dancing together. Uh, the feeling that they respond to everything in ways that you expect, that they say things you think are funny, uh, they laugh at the things you say <laughs> that you think are funny. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's hard, but I don't think it's impossible. You know, there's a question that I realize that I forgot to ask you, that as we talk about people who have lost their husbands, people all around us are experiencing loss of one kind or another, loss of their health and enduring an illness, losing a spouse, a child, a, you know, a parent. There are all sorts of circumstances. And I think as I've spoken to friends, you hear lots of instances of people not knowing the right thing to say. Even their normal, close, conversational style seems to be hijacked in that circumstance. And you have lots of stories in the book that relate to those kinds of situations. What do you think is the best advice to give to someone as they try to figure out the right way to be comforting to a friend that's experiencing some sort of loss or grief or sadness? Yes, I did have uh, quite a bit on that because it's one of the things that we all find so challenging and it's times that are so important to get it right. Um, the most important thing is don't disappear. It can be tempting. You're afraid to intrude. You think, well, maybe they don't want to be bothered. Um, as one person who had lost his brother actually said to me, why are people so afraid of intruding? The worst thing they can do is disappear. Mm. Make that call. If they don't want to answer the phone, don't. Tell them, maybe. If you don't want to answer, if you don't want to pick up, don't. But I want you to know that I'm here, that I'm thinking of you. Uh, he said, and several people that I talked to said how much it meant that friends just, just kept in touch, texting, um, sending messages. And, of course, something that you hear from just about everybody now. Um, don't say, if there's anything I can do, tell me, but make a specific offer. Can I give you a ride somewhere that you need? Can I bring over dinner one night? And if you can't do any of those things, just just being a present is, is significant in itself. And sometimes it means being together and not talking, which mm. can be very hard for women because many of us feel we should be talking. Um, I think of a woman who told me when she went through a divorce, she kind of avoided her women friends because she didn't want to talk about it all the time. Right. What she found most comforting uh, was to spend time with a man she knew who was also going through a divorce, but they never talked about it. They rode their bikes until they were exhausted. Mm. Well, Deborah, I would uh, like to thank you not only for joining us on Just the Right Book, but I think that the enormity of all that you've written, um, you've been on, you know, every show on the planet. You've been on the Colbert Report in 2020 and Good Morning America and Charlie Rose and Oprah and PBS, I mean, everywhere. And all the books that you've written, I think, give us the guidance and uh, the awareness that improves our relationships with our children, with our spouses, with our friends, with our coworkers. And in this world that seems fraught, um, as you brilliantly predicted 20 years ago, way ahead of your time, with all the kind of contentious conversation that seems to go on, you're contributing to our ability to be thoughtful 
and consider it with each other. And it's what we need so much of. And I really want to thank you for throwing that out in the world because (laughs) for damn sure we need more and more of that these days. Well, thank you so much. It means a lot to hear you say that. And, And thank you for this wonderful conversation. For a complete list of all the books we've talked about today, just go to bookpodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Just the Right Book Podcast on iTunes and rate and review us. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, a division of CRN International. Original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all for listening.